Welcome to Jade Explains Death, a place where the more morbid the curiosity, the better. We'll be confronting the one thing humans fear most, death. Each episode will be dedicated to a manner of death, and I will paint a vivid picture of how each would feel, as well as share some of the darkest yet most interesting real-life stories. Get ready, because we're about to embark on an adventure now. It's almost Halloween, my true crime cupcakes. What a better way to celebrate than to creep ourselves out a little. We're going to be discussing two of the world's scariest ways you can die. My content may be upsetting to some and for a mature audience. Listener discretion advised. Let's kick things off with the death that not only scares me the most, but also seems to be one of your most feared ways to kick the bucket. This one has all the fixings of nightmare fuel, claustrophobia, suffocation, darkness, and being trapped alone. I'm talking about being stuck in a deep, dark, narrow cave. The most disturbing cave story that I've ever come across is that of John Jones and the Nutty Putty Cave. I have lost countless hours of sleep over this one. It loves to creep into my mind when I'm laying down at night in the dark at a time when I'm most vulnerable to anxiety and have a really difficult time walking myself back from the ledge. I think I first learned of this story about seven years ago, and it has been impossible to shake ever since. I didn't even know at the time that this was my most feared death. John Edward Jones was on a family excursion at the Nutty Putty Cave in Utah just days before Thanksgiving in 2009. Exploring caves of all kinds was kind of a family sport, though it had been years since their last adventure. John's wife, Emily, decided to sit this one out because she was pregnant with their second child. This was basically just a fun way for the family to reconnect with one another and reclaim a tradition ahead of the holiday. The Nutty Putty Cave got its name from the strange structures found inside. It's loaded with clay that would alternate between being rock hard and pliable like Play-Doh or putty. This cavern was also known for having extremely narrow passageways, including one that was called the birth canal for obvious reasons. There were also areas that were not meant to be explored at all, because it was humanly impossible to fit through. The constantly changing texture of the clay increased the dangers lurking inside. If you were able to barely squeeze your body through a crevice when the clay was putty-like, you might run into trouble on your way back. When it hardens, you might not have the room to shimmy through any longer. John entered Nutty Putty at around 8 p.m. on November 24th, 2009. About an hour in, he decided he really wanted a challenge, so he detoured to find the infamous birth canal, a place he had explored in his youth. The problem was, John was now 6 feet tall and 200 pounds. His stature had drastically changed since he was a teen. He really thought that he remembered the way. He found an itty-bitty area that resembled the passageway he was looking for, and he began inching his way through it. He first stuck his head into the crevice, followed by his chest. He noticed quite a bit of resistance, but he remembered that it used to feel impossible. He was looking for a challenge and a little adrenaline, so he persisted. He had to wiggle slightly, rocking right to left, right to left, until his belly managed to squeeze in a little ways. He began shifting his hips to try and get a little farther. He wouldn't budge. He attempted to draw in a deep, clarifying breath, but his chest wouldn't fully inflate. It didn't have enough space. Right then and there, he knew he was in grave trouble. He made a deadly error. Just before attempting to shimmy himself through the bone-type passage, he exhaled and held. Do me a favor. Put your hands just below your collarbone on each side and draw in a deep breath. 
and exhale. Do you feel how your chest expands and then goes down? Once jammed inside, stuck with his lungs deflated, he didn't have room to inhale deep. Also, the clay that surrounded him was beginning to harden. It was somewhat pliable when he first began his descent into Nutty Putty. He popped himself in just far enough for his ribs to hook on the hard rock. Because of this, he was not in a place with a lot of options. He took a few minutes to really try to shove himself through. There was no room to turn around, and now even backing up was out of the question. His only option was to attempt to go in farther in hopes that he could get to a place where he could at least breathe easier while waiting for rescue, but that didn't happen. With the clay hardening all around his body, he was totally and completely stuck. What's even worse is, John was head down on an incline. Blood was rapidly rushing to his head. Saliva was pooling in his mouth. His eyes even felt like they were starting to protrude from their sockets. Throw in the unfortunate fact that he couldn't draw in a deep breath and you have a worst case scenario. It wouldn't take long for his entire body to start feeling the strain of being upside down and completely unable to move. His joints would feel as if they were locking up and swelling into an hour like this, and it would feel as if tiny explosions of napalm were detonating inside of his elbows, knees, and shoulders. His chest and upper back would ache initially, but that would soon give way to raw throbbing. His tiny breaths would feel like thick needles puncturing his lung tissue. His head would also begin to relentlessly pound his blood pools near his brain. Our entire vascular system is designed to prevent blood from pooling at our feet, but it's a one-way system. We do not have a contingency plan to keep blood from pooling at our heads. It would feel like his head was filling with a thick hue of fog and that it was swelling up with hot air like a hot air balloon. His saliva would pool in his mouth and would occasionally invade his sinuses. This would offer a burning sensation that you get when you inhale water up your nose. He would experience uncontrollable drooling. Eventually, his tongue would get so dry that it would feel like a crispy leaf that is moments from dying and has lost all moisture. His throat would burn with the need for water. The very thought of cool water trickling down would become incessant. He'd obsess over this desire. John was trapped all alone for some time, stuck with intrusive thoughts of death and suffocation. Finally, his brother happened upon him. He informed John that he had completely missed the birth canal and was stuck in a deep area of the cave where people never ever try to end up. His brother positioned himself steady behind John's body, wrapped his arms around his legs, and pulled with every fiber of might that he could find. John yelled out in agony from his rib bones rubbing against the hard wall. He didn't budge. Again, he grabbed hold of his calves and yanked hard. Finally, there was some movement, but it was the wrong direction. When his brother let go of his legs, the jolt sent him down even further into the crevice. His head was almost directly below his legs at this point. He was just degrees from being vertically upside down. His brother could only see a small sliver of John's lower legs and feet sticking up through the impossible hole. This was the point that John's brother realized that there was no way that he alone could help him. He had to leave him all alone in the dark once again so that he could go summon help. What John didn't realize at this time was that he had ended up 400 feet or 122 meters down into the cave. That made him 100 feet or 30 meters below the surface of the earth. It took his brother hours to get to the cave's entrance. It also took rescue an additional few hours just to reach him, a span of time likely tainted with terror, agony, and horrible thoughts. 
Once John heard the sounds of another human getting close, I would imagine he felt a huge flood of relief. Help was finally with him. He'd surely be out of this nightmare in no time. Search and Rescue knew right away that this was not going to be an open and shut rescue. With the clay all around the cave transforming from hard to pliable, they understood that it might be impossible to secure a rope and pulley system to any wall inside of the cave. Additionally, John was stuck in an area few had gone before. It was easy to get lost and stuck. That made it incredibly unstable for the workers. The first person to go in to find John was a woman who actually lived nearby and had extensive knowledge of the cave map and had explored this cavern many times herself. She also had a petite frame which lowered her risk of getting stuck. She made it to John with a walkie-talkie and a little encouragement. She assured him that they were going to get him out of there in no time. Soon another member of the rescue team arrived who planned to stay with John through the ordeal. As you can imagine, time for this mission went by in a flash. Maybe not for John, but for the rescue workers because he was down so deep and it took so long for anyone to reach him, they had to make a meticulous plan and it couldn't fail. Because the longer John was stuck upside down and unable to breathe deep, the closer to death he would be. With all of his blood supply heading in the wrong direction on the highway towards his brain, his heart had to really pick up slack. His body was now in need of more oxygen-enriched blood to nourish his system. It had to pump harder, but that's not sustainable for long. Just like any car or machine, if you overwork and overheat the system, it will eventually give out. His heart was no different. That means that every few hour trip that was made to get to and from John had to count. They had limited chances. Once the first woman who reached John got back to the surface and out of the cave, she informed the rest of the team of the challenges that lurked below. It was decided early on that a pulley system was really their best bet. It might be tricky to secure the ropes to the walls of the cave, but they had to try and hope for the best. They couldn't dig and break through rock to get to him. He was beneath pounds and pounds of clay and rock. Digging could easily collapse the nearby passageways, burying him and crushing debris alive. It was also noted that chances were, if this rescue mission did work, it would most definitely result in some broken bones, especially his ribs. With them being jammed up against hard rock, the friction and force would inflict serious trauma. Additionally, his legs were at risk of breaking because there was limited space. His legs were sticking straight up. But surviving with broken bones that will heal is a small price tag for getting out of this nightmare. At least by this point, John was no longer alone. He had one of the members of the rescue team by his side offering him sips of Gatorade. He worked tirelessly to keep John focused on the positive and to keep him roused. At one point, John even joked about the fact that he hates yellow Gatorade, the one flavor that was brought to him. Me too, John. Me too. The man brought up John's wife and child. He kept him focused on what was important, on what would surely power his will to live. He did a phenomenal job. He no doubt offered at least a little comfort during this horrifying ordeal. Finally, the pulley system was set up. It was secured to an area in the cave that seemed sturdy enough, but this plan had to unfold quickly before the clay made its way back to being tacky once again. The ropes were secured around John's legs. He could feel it. This was it. He was so close to breathing in fresh air and seeing his wife. Soon this would all just be a terrible memory, a story to be told to his children once they got a little older. The system was deployed. It had way more power than any one or two or three people did. It seemed to be working. If you were to focus on it hard enough, it honestly looked like it was moving. 
Suddenly, John felt a rush of slack on his end of the rope, a jarring sensation of a small earthquake coupled with the sound of ripping, sliding, and thumps told a very dark tale. The wall couldn't hold after all, and now jagged rocks and clay of all shapes and sizes were tumbling down on top of him. His rescue buddy was in grave danger of becoming trapped along with him. A decision was made to hoist him out of the cave, leaving John alone once again. John's wife felt the shattering weight, and so did the team. Each and every person on this mission was so invested. They wanted this to work. They hadn't even prepared themselves for the possibility that this might be the first time that they're unable to save the person. It had already been 24 hours, and John's pulse was growing weak even before the rocks and pulley system collapsed. It was hard to say just how much time he might have left, but everyone knew that it wouldn't be long enough to launch a new mission. So many people that were there on the scene couldn't come to terms with this. They kept making arguments that they knew they would never win because deep down inside they understood that they just didn't have the time. Soon after, a sickening silence swept over the ground. Nobody could muster words without risk of crying, something they would never want to inflict on John's wife. They had to remain strong, they couldn't waver, the only comfort that could be offered was to allow John a chance to speak with his wife. She was given the walkie-talkie and she began trying to connect to her husband, buried beneath rock and far beneath where she stood. John was growing weary and cold. It was difficult to fend off sleep, but he was able to communicate back. They exchanged many words, words that his wife knew would be their last. It was only a couple of hours later when John was pronounced dead an EMT was able to make it down to John long enough to check for a pulse in his ankle. He had succumbed to cardiac arrest or positional asphyxiation. Some people believe that John wasn't actually dead. The thing about being stuck upside down is your pulse would be incredibly weak at your ankles. It might even be impossible to detect. So there's certainly a chance that he was still alive. But if he was, he didn't have much longer. He was likely at least deeply unconscious at this point. He was finally free from the fear, free from the utter agony, free from the intrusive thoughts, free from mourning the rest of his life that he would never get. It was determined to be impossible to retrieve his body. His position made it too difficult, and employing another pulley system in those unstable walls was a death wish for the rescue crew. Nobody liked it, but it was decided that John Jones would have to stay inside of the Nutty Putty Cave. The entrance was sealed up, he was sealed up. The place that killed him had now grown into his final resting place. To this day, 12 years later, his body remains deep in the bowels of the Nutty Putty Cave. The only saving grace is that John likely saved others from getting trapped in the future. And though we know John likely died from cardiac arrest or positional asphyxiation without the capability to do an autopsy, we will never know for sure. The trouble all began with his blood vessels. The vessels in our legs have tiny little fibers that constricts them when we're standing up. The blood vessels and arteries in the head do not have these fibers because we typically don't need them. This allowed the blood to rush downward into his brain and basically just sit there. This makes the heart pump harder and compensate and also takes away the oxygenated blood from every other vital organ. Also, our organs are kind of placed in our body strategically. We are a pretty marvelous machine. Our liver is our heaviest organ. When we're trapped upside down for a long period of time, the liver starts to push into the lungs and can even crush them slowly over a period of many hours. 
John was also trapped in a tiny rock-hard crevice that didn't allow much room to breathe deep in the first place. Between that and his liver now practically on top of his lungs, asphyxiation grew to become an imminent threat. As tragic as it is, it speaks volumes about John's fighting spirit that he was able to make it for 27 hours down in that cave. Panic does not help us when we are already in a situation where we're not getting enough oxygen. We often hyperventilate and our respirations speed up without us even taking notice. You see this in a lot of diving accidents where divers get stuck or lost. They burn through their oxygen reserve in their tanks a lot faster because they get so flustered and terrified and begin breathing heavier and more frequently. John somehow managed to keep his wits about him. He remained in fairly positive spirits through majority of the duration with a member of the rescue team. He fended off delirium for a remarkable amount of time. After 14 to 16 hours, delirium would be inevitable. He was suffering from hypoxia in his vital organs or inadequate oxygen, and later, even in his brain. Even though his brain was hogging a great deal of his blood, he couldn't breathe easily. He was only able to drink in shallow breaths. Hypoxic brain injury displays through hallucinations and later the inability to stay awake for long stretches until finally a person slips into a coma or just dies. He likely had a really tough time differentiating between reality and his dream state. One can only hope that his hallucinations were a nice distraction. I can't even imagine what it was like to drift away to a place where you're free from that cave only to circle back to reality. It reminds me of when you lose someone you love. For the longest time, each morning, right when you open your eyes, you forget that they're gone. But soon the truth creeps in and you have to confront it all over again. I feel like it was very similar to that for him. Unfortunately, he had to contend with maddening agony for a large bulk of his time stuck. There used to be a torture technique that prevented a person from moving a muscle for long periods. The pulsating and desire to stretch or move becomes unrelenting. It's all a person can think about. Plus, there's darkroom torture, where you're kind of driven mad from being stuck in a dark room, and I feel like he endured both of those things. Ever since I first learned the story, one question has danced around in my head since, and it might be silly, but it's, was his soul able to find its way out of that cave? I'd like to believe that it did. I really hope that John has found eternal peace. There aren't many people who deserve it more than he does. But that is one of the things that has kept me awake for countless nights. Another truly terrifying way to die that I think we can all agree on is being buried alive. And we have a pretty colorful history with this happening by accident frequently. So frequently that some people requested a bell be installed next to their grave with a string that ran down into their coffin. If this horrible fate befell them, they could simply tug on that string to alert people of their whoopsie. In 1915, 30-year-old Essie Dunbar's sister got a heart-wrenching call. She was told her young, sprightly sister had died. Essie had suffered from epilepsy, and she had a terrible seizure that proved deadly. Or so everyone thought. Her sister was also told that she must travel quickly because her funeral was already scheduled for the following day. Apparently, it was scheduled by the doctors, which seems odd to me. She begged them to wait for her. She wasn't sure if she could make the trip that fast. 
but it was insisted that it shall go on as scheduled the following day, regardless if she could make it or not. Essie's sister cleared her schedule, called into work, and got in her car as quickly as she could, but it was an 18-hour drive. She arrived in South Carolina the following afternoon. The moment that she got to the cemetery, the final piles of dirt were being placed on top of her grave. Her sister began sobbing. She kept hollering, no, no, I need to see her, over and over. She ordered that her sister's body be removed from the dirt so she could say her final goodbyes. Luckily, the person in charge agreed. Essie Dunbar's casket was dug up, and when her casket was opened, everyone around was in utter shock. Essie simply sat up and smiled at her sister. She had never been dead after all. It was certainly not her time because she went on to live another 47 years. How did this happen? Well, at the time, embalming was around, but it was an extra expense. It wasn't a guarantee. And I suppose doctors made horrible mistakes. Which is the part that I find most unsettling? How can a trained medical doctor truly declare a time of death for a person who isn't dead? I mean, they're doctors. Also, with the funeral being so rushed, it didn't give a lot of time to observe any red flags. These red flags would include her body not emanating a stench or beginning to stiffen from rigor mortis. After two to three days of holding a body and this not happening, that's a pretty good indicator that the person's alive. Plus, had they waited even one more day, she would have woken up before being put in the ground. Because medical doctors were with her when she allegedly died, no autopsy was performed. As soon as the medical examiner would have attempted to slice into her, they would have seen real live blood trickling from her wound, something that a dead corpse is not capable of. When buried alive in a standard coffin, you'd have enough surrounding oxygen inside for you to survive for around five hours if you use that oxygen wisely. That's a pretty short window, but would feel like a horrible eternity to the person stuck in that predicament. Pretty much immediately, you'd be struck with utter panic. Even if you're not claustrophobic, you will be. You'd begin breathing fast, screaming, and pounding on the wood above you, which might eat up some of your time. I mean, just imagine. Close your eyes and really imagine what that would be like. The air around you feels so heavy, and you're drowning in pitch black darkness. Not like the kind of darkness you're accustomed to on the surface of the earth with ambient light. Total and complete empty darkness. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. Your survival instinct drives you to try and save yourself, a mission that is impossible. You won't relent. You can't stay here. You weren't ready to die. Your first order of business is to try and get out of this damn casket. If it's a modern casket made of metal, you're screwed. I mean, you're kind of screwed either way. You'd begin feverishly clawing at the wood above you. The pads of your fingers would sting with splinters. Your terror-fueled adrenaline's keeping it at bay, for now. Soon you'd feel warm, sticky blood trickle down onto your face as your nails file down to your finger nubs. You refuse to stop. You begin pounding your fist against the area where you've clawed. It doesn't even feel like you're close to breaking through. Eventually, you'd exhaust yourself. Your adrenaline would ease and the burning pain in your fingers would catch up with you. You might try to quiet yourself for a moment. You catch your breath, which only reminds you that soon you'll run out of breaths. You'll suffocate to death, a fear you've held since childhood. This inflames your desperation once again. After three hours pass, 
You feel like it's already been days. You ache to move. Your joints are screaming at you. Your muscles feel completely frozen. Like they've been inactive for so long that they're nearing death and will never stretch or move again. Your eyes are swollen and stinging from your relentless tears. Your throat feels dry and cracked from screaming for so long. This is when you enter the bargaining stage. If I can just get out of the situation, I promise I will never take my life for granted again. I'll go back to school. I'll work with children. I'll do whatever I can to improve our world. Please, just this once. I just need a miracle this one time. You pause to think, but all that does is make you realize the gravity of the situation. If nobody finds you down here, you are going to die. This is going to be it. Your head begins to pulsate. It's as if a sharp metal claw is digging in all around it and it's getting tighter. You wonder if you're starting to suffocate. Is this what it feels like? In reality, you are not there yet, but you're crying, screaming, and desperation has caused your headache, and all of those actions has brought death closer, closer than ever before. You shut your eyes and try to grab hold of yourself. You wish to escape in your mind. Your lungs feel so damn heavy, like wet sandbags. Your lips tingle, and your tongue feels engorged and dry. Suddenly, the need for cool water is louder than everything else. In another hour, you are offered your escape. You lose complete touch with reality. You're swept away by delusional waking dreams. You can feel the sunshine on your cheeks. The air is crisp and floral. The breeze feels so cooling on your face. There's a sweet little farmhouse off in the distance. To get to it, you must go through rows and rows of vibrant flowers. Suddenly, you're dragged back to hell again in that pitch black. You try to draw in a breath, but your lungs won't expand. You feel like molten glass is sliding down your throat. Your head is burning up. A rabid fire is consuming you from the tip of your head down to your diaphragm. This must be it. You hope it comes fast. Impending doom washes away everything in your head. Your face and lips are still tingling. You continue to try and gasp for air, but to no avail. You've depleted your supply. It only takes around two minutes for you to drift back into that field of flowers. You smile as the relief rushes over your entire body. You twirl and giggle. You run towards the farm, stopping along the way to pick up a fuchsia-colored flower. You admire the little black speckles dancing along the petals. But then, the flowers vanish. The sun's hidden behind dark clouds. The farm's disappearing into mist. You can still feel the breeze for a moment before that too seems to vaporize. This is the moment that you finally die. Thank you so much, my true crime cupcakes, for joining me. I hope that you have an amazing, glittery, colorful, spooky, scary Halloween tomorrow. I'm going to go see a scary movie with my wife, and she hates scary movies, so it'll be extra fun for me. But then don't forget to join me next week. My episode next week is going to be all about poisons. So... Have a fun, safe Halloween, and I will see you then.